This is a recording made in the Chapel of the Open Book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals and the subtitle, The Second Coming of Christ as taught in the New Testament. It is our custom at this meeting to read portion of Scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and chapter 5. This evening, we focus our attention upon the testimony of this one epistle, 1 Thessalonians, to the great subject which is before us, the second coming of Christ. In our previous study, we assembled together the seven epistles that were written during the Acts of the Apostles and ran through their testimony. Uh, but it would be presumption to assume that either you or I, by running through seven epistles, could say, well, we know all about that. And now we're coming to the one epistle and letting that speak its own peculiar message. But however it, it speaks, we are conscious of this, that it will be in perfect harmony with the will of God at the time. In other words, the second coming of Christ is as much associated with dispensational truth as any other feature. Because hope is associated in the New Testament with two distinct things. Hope in the New Testament is either the realization of your calling or the fulfillment of a promise. And in both cases, this promise or this calling is essentially related to whether the people of Israel are a factor in the scheme or whether you have reached that time when they were dismissed when they took their hope with them, when the covenant, as it were, was suspended and God made a new revelation through his servant Paul as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles. The New Testament also uses words with regard to this second coming with discrimination. The key word for the second coming of Christ in the early part of the New Testament is the word parousia. There is also one or, two, one or two references which use the word apocalypse, but the word which peculiarly belongs to the church of the dispensation of the mystery is not the word parousia, it's never used of it. It is the word epiphania, or our word we say epiphany. Well now, if God has chosen to use distinct words, then, coming back to a principle that I've stressed before, the words which the Holy Ghost teaches they must be respected. Well, now, first of all, I do not say that it is wrong, that would be very wrong of me to criticise anybody, that there should be a distinct movement to testify to the second coming of Christ. Well, we need these movements to stir up the mind and focus attention. But the New Testament doesn't do that. Paul doesn't write an epistle all about the second coming. He relates the second coming to their calling and to their manner of life. And so the first thing I want you to remember is that we must not, either in this subject or any other, just pick out a text and shut the book and then give an exposition of the text. For we shall only mislead ourselves and others. The second coming is an integral part interwoven in the teaching of this epistle and we must see that interwoven first before we take out one thread and examine it. Well now you see this chart before you, you already have before your eyes the idea that there's a threefold cord 
And that threefold chord is sounded in the first chapter. It's, it's taken to pieces in chapter three and four and five comes back again together. Oh, you say that's very clear. Yes, I know. All right, we'll start. On the top of the chart, I've listed out the three words. He says in this second verse, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Those three words are characteristic of Paul's teaching. You remember 1 Corinthians 13 where he, after speaking about the wonder of miraculous gifts, says there's a better way and speaks of love or charity as it's put there. And then he says, these gifts may pass, but now abide faith, hope, love. Those three. You'll find them coming together in the epistle to the Romans and in the epistle to the Hebrews and elsewhere. In fact, I suppose it would not be too bold to say that there is no doctrine in the New Testament that lies outside faith, hope, and love. And practice is associated with those three, and if any believer knows that he has the work of faith, and the patience of hope, and the labour of love, well, he's well on the way to glory, isn't he? I think we'd all say that practically exhausts the bill. So, you see, what I'm trying to show is this that while we may, for the purposes of teaching, lift out faith, or lift out hope, or lift out love, they mustn't be lifted out and separated and put aside. They belong. So that while we are keen at this present moment to consider the teaching of the second coming of Christ, we're also keen about all the relationships that we bear one to another as members of his body, or the justification by faith, and all the doctrine and practice together. It makes us saner. Because you see, you say you believe in the secret rapture. So you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 and regardless of anything that's already written, you prove it. Well, let's start, shall we? First of all, you will notice that I've set out on this chart the way in which the uh, faith and hope and love are brought together. We have them there in the first line, the work of faith, the labour of love and the patience of hope. And then we have as you read in chapter 3, an emphasis upon faith only. Oh, how concerned he is about their faith. Comfort concerning your faith. He says that twice, you notice. Not moved and stand fast and perfect with regard to your faith. And when the good tidings of your faith came, how it refreshed the apostle. Faith. Then he speaks about love, one to another, in the next section, chapter 3, 12 to 4, 12. And then... In the last chapter 4, 13 to chapter 5, 11, he has the emphasis upon hope. And when you come to the last chapter, you find that all three, not merely faith and hope and love, but all three are repeated in that chapter. In case we missed it before, let's be sure. Chapter, chapter 5, verse 8. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and from helmet, the hope of salvation. There's the three. Then presently, he says, uh, we beseech you, uh, verse 12, we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you. So it repeats the word labor. And then it says in verse 14, at the end, be patient toward all men. And then it says, 
what do I want to work? Oh, verse 13, esteeming every highly, very highly in love for their work's sake. It surely is not accidental that he starts with the word, the work of faith, the labour of love, the patience of hope, and in the last chapter he brings all six words together again. And I think we do well never to divorce them. Even James, you remember, draws our attention that faith without works is dead being alone. And a person who goes all goofy over the second coming of Christ and is not walking worthy of his calling is not in harmony with this, for this speaks about a consistent walk and to live looking for that blessed hope. It should, as it were, influence our lives and not merely give us a ground of speculation. Well, so far, so good. Well, now we look at this first chapter and we observe when we reach the bottom that we have the first definite reference to the second coming in this epistle. And inasmuch as Galatians contains no reference to the second coming, in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, we have the earliest reference to the second coming of Christ in Paul's epistles. And this must, in some measure, set the course. He will not put a statement here and then contradict himself in the closing chapter, not the Apostle, because uh, he was writing under the inspiration of God, and quite apart from that, he was a man of truth and had ability to write and speak plainly. So verses 9 and 10. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven. I put that at the bottom, you see, the work of faith, the labour of love, the patience of hope, and you turned, and you served, and you wait. Well, that's an exposition of faith and hope and love so far as it's beginning to uh, be uh, systematised by the Apostle. But now notice this. They were to wait for his son from him. Well, you don't need to be even spiritual to know if you're waiting for somebody to come from heaven, you are not in heaven. If you're waiting for his son from heaven, you can't be there already, can you? No, you say, why press that? Oh, well, you've only got to go to the fourth chapter to find that some teacher that it is so. All right. The next thing is this. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So that these people were exposed to the wrath to come if they had not been believers in Christ. And only the blessed hope in front of them makes them sure that they will not pass through that wrath to come. Well, you know as well as I do, the wrath to come is focused in the book of the Revelation. The pouring out of the vials of wrath, in them the, the wrath of God is consummated. These people were liable, if they hadn't uh, entered into this blessed hope, to be exposed to that dreadful day, so far as they knew, and so far as the Apostle could tell them. Would you notice a, a further point with regard to this question of the, of the uh, wrath? In uh, chapter 2, 16, here we have somebody else, another company exposed to wrath. He says in verse 14, For ye brethren became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men 
forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. So here are two companies. One delivered from the wrath to come, the other exposed to that wrath which fell in a few years' time as recorded in Acts 28 and in history when the Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple burned and destroyed and people scattered. So now we've got these people connected with the people of Israel. At the very same time that these people were being converted and believing, the people of Israel were subjecting themselves to this possibility of wrath to come because they forbade the preaching of the gospel to those very Gentiles. If we go a stage further in chapter 5, verse 9, we read these words. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Well, living together with him is when and how. Oh, we are supposed to have read chapter 4. Verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So, this in this manner, not going to glory independently, but going to glory at the second coming when he comes for his people. So the whole thing hangs together. We go back again. Chapter 1. And to wait for his son from heaven. First of all, let's remember, we're not waiting, or these were not waiting for the second coming. Second coming is just an abstract title, isn't it? Never let us forget, it's the Lord himself in chapter 4. And in the Acts of the Apostles, this same Jesus. We're not waiting for the second coming, we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. Or as it puts it, to wait for his Son from heaven. So there is that feeling that we should live looking. Now the word patience is very much associated with the word wait and with the word watch. The word patience, made up of two parts, hupo meaning under, and meno meaning to abide or remain, to remain under. The word wait is made of two parts, anna, above, above, and meno, to remain, to remain above. You see? Oh, we're not going to pull a long face and say, oh, we've got to remain under. Because the other word says, oh, we're remaining above, on tiptoe, because we've entered into the blessedness of it before it comes. Oh, keep the two friends. Don't be among those people who are only happy when they're miserable. But don't you see, here we have the, the thought expressed, let patience have its perfect in work, says James. And then in the, in the end of his epistle he says, you've heard of the patience of Job? You've seen the end of the Lord? So this patience has a place in things. It has a, it has a, a work to do. I've never yet anybody who would not benefit by a little bit more patience than you, because I don't like to speak about myself. I let other people talk about me over that. 
But patience is a wonderful thing. I remember in one of the lists that the apostle gave of his qualifications as an apostle, it was the very first he said, in all patience, my he needed it, didn't he? But you see, we haven't got to go about drilling ourselves and making ourselves humble and patient. We've got that in front of us all the time. And that makes it easier for us to remain under. Of course, if this is the be-all and the end-all of your existence, well, you elbow the other man out of the way, you try to get his job because he gets a pound a week more. But you say, well, what's the odds? You see, short life and a gay one and what not. But supposing you say, I've got that blessed hope in front of me. Well, then the same spirit that actuated Moses when he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose rather to suffer with the people of God and enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season because he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He was losing nothing. So, we remain under, willingly. We, we walk through this wilderness, like we read in the Old Testament, that the children of Israel said, let us go through the highway, we'll walk on our feet, we'll pay for our bread, we'll pay for our water, we won't turn aside, left or right, we are travelling home. That's what we are doing through this world. And we are sustained by this blessed hope to have that position that people might despise us for, that we take it lying down, they think, you see. Well, we can smile, we can wait, because the best is yet to be. Poor souls, if they have no hope, well, let them have their fling if they must. We are not envying them. And if they despise us, they despise the better one than ever we shall ever be, except by grace in him, in the eyes of the Lord. Well, now, we've got those two then. Um, in chapter 1, 9 and 10, we've got that weight from heaven, balancing, as it were, the patience of the hope. Do take with you, won't you, the idea of the one is under and the one is over. We're not got, we haven't got one, we've got both. The patience is the ability to remain under, but the waiting is because you already got your affection set upon things above and over. Well now the next thing is, I think we must come to chapter 2, because there we have another reference to this same coming. He says in verse 19, And what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? See, the word here is the word I mentioned just now, the word parousia, for coming. There is no idea of movement in the word parousia. Our word coming has got the thought of arriving. Uh, but it's the personal presence rather than a movement. The word was in ordinary everyday use in the days of the Apostle, and that has been quite proved by the papyrus that's been dug out of the sands of Egypt. The word is used for the preparation that was necessary in a town for the coming of a king. Unfortunately, the papyrus said that they were having to tax themselves to pay the expenses. But so far as our blessed hope is concerned, we are not going to pay any expenses, blessed be God, they're all paid. But at the same time, here's a word that means preparation for the personal advent of a king. Well, that's what they were waiting for. That is the word. 
And we find this in use in 24 passages. I don't think I can give you the 24. But you have access to concordance and you can search this for yourself. But I'll give you one or two. Matthew 24. Now Matthew 24 we've already considered and it is associated with the hope of Israel and the kingdom. It's connected with the prophecy of Daniel and here we have this word in Matthew 24 verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And the end of the world. Thy coming. They wanted to know the sign of that coming. And in verse 30, Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's what's going to take place at this parousia coming. And that is the word used in 1 Thessalonians. So that you see we must be careful not to divorce it. Because that Matthew 24 and this 1 Thessalonians is still within the limits of the hope of Israel. Another reference that I think we ought to have is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 23. But as I say, there are 24 references I'm giving you just a selection. It says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. And the word order there means every man in his own rank. So there are different ranks. And this book, this very chapter says, one star differs from another, though they're both in glory. So in the second coming, there will be his feet standing in that day upon the Mount of Olives. There will be the meeting of the bridegroom and the bride in the heavenly Jerusalem. And there will be the manifestation in glory where Christ sits at the right hand of God the hope being realised at each one of those callings and those distinct spheres. Or again, in this very uh, epistle, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3 and 13, we read, To the end he may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints. But now again, the coming of the Lord is coming with all his saints. And if those saints are the redeemed, that are already in heaven, how, oh dear, 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 how can you be waiting on earth for the Lord to come from heaven and you're waiting to come with him? Don't you see? But you say it says so. Yes, but then you see, what we've done is to misread this. We assume that with all his saints means with all his redeemed people, with his church. But if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll discover that this refers to the angels. Will you look at Deuteronomy 33, 2? Deuteronomy 33, 2. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousand of his saints. So here we have 
the coming of the Lord with all his saints. Or if you'll read Psalm 68, you'll get another reference to the same event. Psalm 68, verse uh, 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. So, Deuteronomy and Psalm speaks about Mount Sinai and the angels and their coming with the Lord. And once more, in the prophet Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 1. The prophet Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 1. I'm saying it two or three times because I can't find the place, of course. <laughs> Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And then, verse 3, shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley and half the mountain shall, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north and half toward the south. Now I was looking for the passage which I hadn't yet found. The Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Now, I don't know whether anyone can help me over that but if not, is it verse 3? Verse 5, oh yes. Uh, and you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, you shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Oh, yes, thank you. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Well, is anybody going to say that that refers to the church? Or the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. He is referring to that when he writes to them, you're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Will you turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? We should have to give 2 Thessalonians its own examination. But I pause to remark here that it's a poor line of teaching which has to say that 1 Thessalonians deals with the secret rapture of the church and 2 Thessalonians deals with something that's going to take place long afterwards. Who said so? Paul wrote to the same church within a month or two because he's correcting things that they didn't understand. He's speaking about the same thing all the time. The same as one Corinthians is followed by two Corinthians and he refers to the same thing all the time. So here in this first chapter it says, verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. So, the coming of the Lord with all his saints. Well, if you were living in that prospect, wouldn't you now say, oh, thank God, I'm looking for his son from heaven who will deliver me from the wrath to come. I might have been left with those who know not God and believe not his gospel and I should have been subject to that wrath instead. It all works together. It hangs together. Well, now it's time for us to move to the one great passage with which we associate 1 Thessalonians, that's chapter 4. And a good many of those who are listening to me say, yes, I wish you got there earlier. Yes, I know you do, because you see, we should have avoided all these other references, and we could have got away with it, that this is a secret rapture, and some are in heaven coming back with the Lord and whatnot. But you can't do it now. First of all, he says, 
I would not have you ignorant, brethren, this is verse 13 of chapter 4, concerning them which are asleep. Do notice that the scripture speaks of those who have died as those who are asleep. Uh, I don't know whether I better do this, but I think perhaps as we read chapter 5, I will draw your attention that the sleep and the waking in chapter 4 is not the sleep and the waking in chapter 5. We have two words for sleep. One means to fall asleep involuntarily, that's death. The other means to sit down and fold your hands and go to sleep, that's laziness. And in the second chapter, he says, verse 10, who died for us, that whether we are watchful or drowsy, see, not whether we wake or sleep, but whether we are watchful or drowsy, we shall live together with him, but if you're not watchful and you are drowsy, you'll lose your crown that he's not talking about. That is talking about living with him. But that's another question, and we'll go back to 1 Thessalonians 4. Then which are asleep, that we sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. It doesn't say we do not sorrow, for we have that most wonderful outstanding example of one who stood by a grave and could say these words, which no man on earth has ever said before or can say since, I am the resurrection and the life. And yet that very same chapter tells you that Jesus wept. So he doesn't say that we've got to be stoics, and we've got to say that we have no sorrow, that would be untrue. But we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. Have you ever had tears in your eyes and caught a rainbow? Well, if you've not, next time you cry, you try it you'll discover that you can get a rainbow with a tear. And that's what God wants us to do. Have your tears, that's human, but have them irradiated by his grace, that sunshine that's representing the hope to which we press. So here we have it. We sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. There are those who think that this means they will bring, he will bring with him from glory. But this has to do with those who are asleep and they are awakened and they come with him through that gracious work of God. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. This is introduced rather with a formality to make it a bit more serious. That we which are alive and remain, that is, they remain on the earth, unto the coming of the Lord, shall not prevent or go before them which are asleep. He's evidently wishing them to say, to see this. He says, this I say unto the word of the Lord. God is not going to have one part of his church in glory and the other part waiting. No. He says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. They will rise first. Then, we which are alive, because it's human to realize that there'll be some living on the earth when the last day comes, and God has prepared for both those multitudes that have died and the fewer number that are living in this way, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, with them, you see, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
And so, in like manner, just like that, and no other way shall we ever be with the Lord. And then the Apostle puts the words, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I don't know whether you've ever received a card from somebody telling you of the death of some friend or loved one. I wonder whether you've ever had on that card the words which Scripture says are a comfort to you. Because some people say to me, well, there's no comfort in that. They want the comfort of the idea that when a person dies, he goes straight away to glory or to some intermediate state. Scripture says he's asleep and they awake and together, not separate, together, living and dead, together. They assemble first. Somebody once said, I believe there's a little kindness there on the part of God. There'll be no anxiety of mother and father and child and whatnot. They'll all have looked round and seen whether they're all there or not before they go into that great presence. They'll know. Well now, let's come back on our story a bit. What about this voice of the archangel? Why should he be brought into it? When you come to think of the archangel, oh, who is the archangel? Well, we'd better settle that first, had we? The epistle of Jude. That's immediately before the book of the Revelation and prepares for it to a large extent. It says in verse 9, Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a raiding accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. Well, the only thing I'm doing for the moment is to show you the passage which tells you that the archangel now you see in in the church of England there are two first bishops archbishops they manage it alright but there's only one archangel one and it should be so the word A-R-C-H means one or the first now this archangel is disputing the very next book says that there was war in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. He's disputing. And when you come to the book of Daniel, an angel is held up by a, a, an angel of darkness for 21 days until Michael the, comes to his rescue, the chief prince. So he's contending. This is, this is, this is the sort of, um, field marshal of God's Battalions. Michael. His references in Jude in the book of the Revelation, in the book of Daniel. Then one other feature, if you go back to the book of Daniel, will link him with this people and not with the church as we understand it. Daniel the twelfth chapter. Or as I've referred to an earlier chapter, we'll look at chapter 10 just in passing. Daniel the tenth chapter. In this 10th chapter, as we've said, the angel was sent with a message to Daniel. But he was intercepted. And he says in verse um, 11, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. And then he said unto me, Fear not, 
Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. So he is a man praying and God sending the message and yet the evil one has such power that he can hold up an angel from heaven by for 21 days. Anyone who discredits Satan and belittles him is only serving the evil purposes of that dark prince. So it says here, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days and lo, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Well, that was the one reference. The other is chapter 12. The first verses. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. Who were the children of Daniel's people? The church? Israel. When Michael stands up, he has Israel in view. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, since there was a nation even at that same time. So when Michael stands up, the great tribulation comes, which is described in other scriptures, in Matthew 24, in other parts of the scriptures, as lasting for roughly three years and a half. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, and many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So we've got Daniel associated with a conflict, with the sleeping, with the waking, with the people of Israel, and he's introduced right straight into 1 Thessalonians 4, and unless it's done to deceive us, it should warn us that we're still on the ground where that people, Israel, and their hope are in view. I don't think there's very much more to say with regard to the teaching of this book with regard to the second coming unless we just look, say, at um, the verse 11 in chapter 5 where after going through the story again he says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together. There is such a thing in the scripture as the comfort of hope and the um, emphasis too, I'll come back to chapter 4 for a moment, one other feature which I slipped the Lord himself should descend from heaven with a shout a shout I don't know whether that takes you back in mind to the time when the children of Israel walked round the walls of Jericho and two things took place they sounded a trumpet and on the seventh day when they sounded the trumpet Joshua said, and when you do it that time, shout. Let no man shout to that time. He gives them explicit instruction. So we have the seventh trumpet and the shout. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 says, at the last trump, well, as far as we've got any information in the scripture, the seventh trumpet is the last trump. And the shout and the archangel is taking us once more back to Jericho, onto the Babylon that falls in the book of the Revelation, and so places 1 Thessalonians 4 directly in line with the hope of Israel, which the Apostle said in the last chapter of the Acts, held him bound with a chain. Now there are some folks who will resist this. I remember many years ago when I was writing in Things to Come, and that goes back to the year 1900 and 
11, I think, 1910. Somebody wrote a, a fierce letter to Dr. Budinger and said that this man, myself, was stealing one Thessalonians from him. Well, Dr. Budinger wrote a nice, kindly letter and, and it simmered down. But here's the thing I would like to tell you. In about two years' time, that very same correspondent wrote back and said, I hadn't stolen anything at all. For he woke up to see that the blessed hope was not necessarily limited to 1 Thessalonians 4. So there's hope for me yet, friends. And if you are listening, feel that you've been robbed, well, search and see, you're the Bereans. I'm only just trying to put over to you what I see in Scripture, but I'm not making up your mind for you. You search and see. But I suggest to you that if you take these passages as they come in Thessalonians, you're waiting for his Son from heaven, who delivers from the wrath to come. You're looking for the coming of the Lord with all these holy ones, that's the angels, and that takes you back again to the Old Testament. You're waiting for the voice of the archangel that stands for the children of Israel, and also when he stands up the time of tribulation, and then you say you're going to avoid the lot by a secret rapture, it won't fit for it. There is an avoidance of it, but it belongs to another calling and another company. So, I leave it with you for the time being, that you, as I say, exercise the Berean spirit, you search and see, and then may God give you the comfort of the hope. Now, next time we meet together, we shall have to consider the relationship between one Thessalonians and two Thessalonians, and if we are agreed that the second epistle cannot possibly refer to a distinct company altogether when he's writing to the self-same church at the self-same time and referring to the self-same things, we shall discover it takes us right into the book of the Revelation, to the dominion of the man of sin, and consequently cannot possibly refer to the church which is the body of Christ, for it has no reference to that particular time at all. We already find it anticipated a little bit in the passage we read just now in chapter 5, because there he says, Yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. He's telling them. They have no need to be told the times and seasons because they knew already. And what they did know was the day of the Lord came as a thief in the night. He didn't say you will never be there, but it says it won't overtake you as a thief because you're of the day and light. You will have the light of the knowledge of, the, of truth. Others will be overtaken because they're unbelievers. So we shall find the day of the Lord again comes in two Thessalonians. And I think for the moment we'll leave it there.